Um, we're starting something new. We're going to get started into Colossians, um, jumping in a different place in the Word. And as you can see, we're doing something different with the camera, too. So uh, bear with me. It's weird for me. If you know me, you know I love eye contact. I love talking to people. I don't have that now. I have the two eyes on that camera over there, and that's it. So... <laughs> Bear with me, we're going to work through it, but what we're trying to do is kind of spend some time in the Word uh, in the morning, let me kind of unpack it, and then we're going to have church around that on Sunday night. So if you're out in our area, we would love for you to come uh, worship with us on Sunday night and, and really talk through and unpack the, the Word together, but I'm going to preach it first. Um, so again, this is not church, this is just me unpacking the word a little bit and um, sharing it with whoever chooses to watch it, but certainly for our church here to meet and gather around on Sunday nights. So uh, in light of this being new, so is our text, and so we're going into Colossians. We're going to talk about knowing who you are. That's going to be our kind of theme through Colossians, knowing who you are. And um, today we're going to look at what happens when culture invades Christianity. A lot of background, a lot of setup here. So there's going to be some talking, some information, some history, maybe a little more of that than um, straight Bible text. But um, we're going to get in there. Believe me, you know me. I love being in the Word. So we're going to get in there. So um, grab a Bible or open your Bible, however you do it. And let's go to Colossians chapter 1. I'm going to read verse... Uh, one, hang on, we're going to go a long way here. Verse 1 and 2. <laughs> uh, it says, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae, grace to you and peace from God our Father. So let me pray for us, and then we'll kind of jump in on that. Lord, I love you. Thank you so much for your word. God, uh I pray you help us understand it. Help me to be able to unpack truth here, not just for those who are listening or planning to talk talk about it later, but but for my own worship, for my own opportunity to love and hear from you. Uh, Lord, I pray you help me be able to connect, even though this is so far out of my comfort zone. Um, I'm only who I am because of your will and your love and your call in my life, and I pray, God, that that's expressed today and this little bit of time that we spend uh, in your word. Pray you help me um, communicate well so that we can all learn and grow from you. And we ask those things in Christ's name. Amen. So out here in Arizona, for those of you who live here, you may know this, but in Chandler, which is a, a town here in Arizona, there's a religion store. And it's a wild place. If you get a chance to go and you're out here, you just window shop. It's something. I mean, they have everything in there. They have Catholic rosaries to Hindu idols. They have tarot cards. They have crosses. They have angel statues. They have Jewish Kabbalah bracelets. They got Bibles, Korans. Um, books on all kinds of things from yoga to Wiccan to just, just everything spells. They have tiny little idols that you can carry in your pocket. They have great big huge idols that you could put in the corner of your house and kneel down and pray to. 
Um, and every time I go near there, I think, I wonder what kind of people it is that walks in there, you know, like, because there's such a variety, like who actually shops there and it's not offended by the other things, you know what I'm saying? And, um, I think too, what, what about the Christian stuff that's in there? There, there are things, there's a big statue of Jesus on the cross in there. There's Christian things in there. So is that make it a Christian store because there's Christian things in there? Um, what makes something Christian? I'll tell you right now, it's not a something. A Christian is a someone. And we probably all know this, but I think it's important that we take time to really, really, really dig into what it means to be called a Christian, to know who you really are. And that's what we're going to be doing through this is looking at this and allowing ourselves to become a little bit confused uh, but only in a way that helps us to ask questions we may not normally ask or, or to, to, to look inside and say, who am I really um, with Christ? And, you know, things like this, they can be confusing at times because you see other things come in. They look real good. They look close. They look similar or, or maybe they look completely different, but they're right there beside what's familiar. Um, so we're going to be looking at this group of believers from Colossae, and they are first century believers and it's going to become pretty obvious here that they're having this very problem that i'm talking about and paul's going to show them and we're going to see this how to understand their identity in christ who they really are in christ and a great uh verse to kind of hang on to we'll hang on to it throughout this whole study is chapter 3 verse 3 of colossians it says for you've died and your life is hidden with christ in god awesome verse Awesome verse. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ and God. So much in there, and we'll get there. But that's kind of the verse that we're going to hold on to. So as we get started today, I want you to really see Paul's example here. That when culture invades Christianity, or the church, you could say, the, that, that, that he, he approaches them in such a way that... He puts his authority out there, and that authority is God's word or the will of God in his life. And he uses that, God's word, God's will, to correct their lives. Um, and it should be that way for us. And then when we share it with others, we need to approach them with love and respect, which is exactly what he does. And you'll see that. So they're going to outline it a little bit weird, but... Um, kind of we're going to look at the overarching theme here of when culture invades Christianity and see the background of that. And then we'll look at how Paul responds to that. First by showing that his authority is from God. And then second by showing the approach here that he takes with respect and love. So first of all, when culture invades Christianity, kind of a background here. Background, I keep saying it. What I mean is, what's the context? What's the world like? Uh, back then, you know, what, what's Colossae like, where they're from, uh, who are these people, who's Paul, who's he talking to, why is he writing it, those kind of things. So we're not going to necessarily answer all those questions, but some of them, to be fair. So chapter 1, verse 1, it says, Paul, in verse 2, to the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae. So that's telling you from Paul to these guys at Colossae. Um, we call Colossians a book of the Bible. But it's actually an epistle. A lot of a lot of books say that an epistle just basically means letter. So it's a letter from Paul to the people in Colossae. Thus, Colossians 
is who they're called. So uh, we'll come back to Paul a little more in a minute. But uh, chapter 4, verse 10 makes it pretty clear. I'm going to skip around a little through the book. You don't have to turn to all these. I'm just justifying where I'm getting what I'm getting for background. Okay, so in chapter 4, verse 10, it makes it pretty clear that Paul's writing this letter from prison. Probably a Roman prison. Um, It's likely the early 60s A.D. So A.D. 62, 63, maybe something like that. Uh, it's a good argument that he wrote the other books of Ephesians and Philippians, uh, and Philemon probably as well from this same prison, maybe at the same time. So, who are these Colossians? You know, what are they like? Paul called these particular Colossians saints and faithful brothers. It's likely a church. Uh, it doesn't say church, but it's, most people believe that it is, may not be. It might just be a family of believers, uh, but either way, we know that they are believers. They're definitely family to Paul in a spiritual family sense. So, uh, we also know that Paul lived in Ephesus for about three years, and Ephesus was a nearby time, town, uh, but we know that Paul never went to Colossians, at least when he'd written this letter, because chapter 2, verse 1 says Paul, Paul had not been there yet. So Paul hadn't been to Colossians at the time he'd written this, or to Colossae, excuse me. So also in verse 7 of chapter 1, Paul mentions Epaphras as one of those who uh, taught the Colossians. Uh, Epaphras, we'll see more about him later, but he was a Colossian, so he was from there. Um, he was either an evangelist there, perhaps, or he might be the church planner. He might, if there's a church, he might be the one that actually started the faith there or planted the church or both. Um, but at the time that he's writing this, that Paul's writing this, he's, Epaphras is not there. He's not in Colossae. We know that because chapter 4, verse 12, Paul says that Epaphras, who is one of you, a Colossian, a servant of Christ Jesus, greets you. So that means that Epaphras is with Paul. He's not, he's not, um, maybe even be in prison with Paul. He's not, you know, the addressee of the letter here, but Paul mentions him. Paul also mentions Timothy, obviously, right there in the beginning in the first verse. Timothy was a native of Lystra. Lystra's kind of like the whole area over there. So he wasn't a Colossian, but he's from that hood, so to speak. And, uh, Timothy had a Gentile father, a Jewish mother. We know that from Acts chapter 16. Um, he was a disciple of Paul. He was a missionary. He was a church planner. He was a pastor. Um, he was a spiritual son to Paul. They were super close. Another little piece on Colossae, too, is that Colossae was inland about 120 miles uh, from the coast. Ephesus was on the coast, and this is modern-day Turkey. And uh, it was inland about 120. 20 miles or so. Um, nothing spectacular about it except that it was on a river. So there was a trade route there um, for a while. But uh, Laodicea, another town, grew up a little north of there and created this almost like Route 66 scenario, if you know the story here in America of Route 66, where the highways kind of cut off the other towns uh, and they just slowly died out. Well, Colossae went from being on this trade route to a shortcut through Laodicea that got built, cut them off, and they went kind of the way of Route 66, you know. Um, by the time Paul writes this, so shortly after perhaps, there's a really bad earthquake that just about wipes out Colossae completely. 
either way, today is nothing but ruins. So what was the culture like? That's the big thing. What was the culture like in Colossae? So there were obviously tons of Greek and Roman gods that were there that they followed or worshipped. They also worshipped ancestors. They worshipped stars. Um, they worshipped magic. Uh, all kinds of things. And it would appear that these Christians, these young Christians, were either hanging on to some of that or letting some of it creep back in. Some of the issues there at Colossae specifically Gnosticism was a big one. We'll come back to that in just a minute. Basically, it's like secret knowledge. It's like mind over matter stuff. We'll come back in a second. Uh, Jewish law-based Christianity, basically meaning that, uh, you know, they're Jewish believers that were saying, we believe in Jesus, yes, but you still have to keep the law. You still have to honor the Jewish law. You still have to do sacrifices. You still have to do those things. Um, and then kind of this mix of all local beliefs, like Christianity fits in with all the rest of what we're doing. And so those were the, kind of the big things. And all of the arguments centered around salvation. So what's the path to salvation? And they all had these different things. Some said, well, it's different deities, so you have to honor all these different deities in different ways at the right time. Uh, some said, well, you can reach holiness or salvation. You can become holy enough to be saved through philosophy, like your mind. You You, you become wise enough that you... You earn salvation. Some said, again, law-keeping, like you keep the law well enough, you can become holy. Um, some believed in denial uh, and, and like starving yourself or, or beating yourself even, like beating yourself into submission so that you'd become holy enough. Worshiping angels, worshiping ancestors, like I said. Keeping superstitions, magic reading spirituality, all, all these things, stars, charts, astrology, all these things were paths to salvation, and they were argued. But Gnosticism is the biggest one here, really. That I feel like Paul seems to find that one everywhere, you know. Um, not agnostic, that's different. Agnostic is saying that we have no knowledge. There, there may be a God, there could be a God, perhaps there is a God, but who knows? We don't know, you know, and, and that's agnostic. Um, Gnosticism different. It's from the Greek word uh, gnosis, which means basically where we get knowledge from. So it is the opposite of not knowing. It's I know everything. It's that guy, you know. <laughs> Claim claims I got all knowledge about everything. I got the answers for it all. Uh, but it's secret and it's special. So I can only share it in small doses because you just can't handle it all at once crazy yeah it sounds crazy but that's what it was and it, it might have included the bible even but it would have superseded it was bigger than the bible knowledge is bigger than the bible bible's part of it it's bigger than that um some similarities with that and like the pope the pope has what's called papal authority which basically means that he would believe and teach the bible but he also has the authority to go above and beyond the bible because supposedly that's not true. That's just what they believe. Um, Gnostics uh, also are very similar to Scientology, which Scientology teaches that knowledge will save us. Basically, same exact principle of what Gnostics believed. They believed that there was a path of spiritual beings between us and God, supreme God. And Jesus was one of those spiritual beings along the path. So that almost sounds like what Mormons believe. They believe in we're all gods. Jesus was a, a son of God as God has had many sons, you know, along the way. So 
couple more things about that, and we'll move on. But here's just interesting I found. These are some Gnostic teachings of the time around around Paul's time. And these are quotes recorded in history. So here's one that says, "There, this is a Gnostic quote. There are some wicked stars up there. Don't do anything important when they're at their most powerful, especially on the days when the moon passes through them. That includes baptizing people. <laughs> See the mix of Christianity in there a little bit? Another one, honor the Sabbath. That's one of the days when the wicked stars are strongest. See that mix again? That's almost Judaism, Christianity, and, you know, mysticism or whatever. It's it's something to kind of link all that stuff together the way they did. But um, something H.J. Ironside, commentator, pastor, noted that was pretty cool here. He noted that it's interesting that God allowed all this stuff into the early church, into those first churches that, that the apostles planted every possible avenue came in and the reason for that is because god had appointed these men to defend his church and these apostles and they defended it from everything they were authorized by jesus to correct all of these things that were coming into the church from everywhere and it's crazy because they recorded all of that in what we call the new testament the word of god they've recorded all of it into scripture so that we have it and now in all the years since, there's not been one new thing that the church has faced. It's repackaged. It's different, you know, a different approach, but the same attempt to discredit the church, the same attempt to disprove or redirect it. It's all the same, just repackaged. Um, and so we can look at the writing of these apostles and see it all. Um, I don't know if you've care, but I, I love Kung Fu, I've always loved Kung Fu movies, MMA, all that stuff, but Bruce Lee's always been one of my favorites, and 30 for 30 ESPN show's about to do a Bruce Lee, and I can't wait to see it, a story on him, and uh, but it's called Be Water, and you can look up why, if you, go watch it, actually you should watch it, and then you can see why, but uh, I, I've been thinking how the church needs to be more like water and less like paint, it's just this thought that's been in my head for a while, and what I mean by that is if you've seen water moving, the way water works, as you know, is that it, and it gets into an environment, a river, a lake, and it, 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 it takes on the form of the environment that it gets into, but it doesn't change its structure whatsoever. It doesn't change uh, its nature. It's still water. Nothing about it changes. It's still water, but it forms the, kind of to the environment that it's in without changing its nature. And then over time, it begins to actually change the environment that it's in. Case in point, the Grand Canyon, you know, or some other things like that. You know what I'm getting at. Paint, on the other hand, covers over whatever it goes on. And it actually assumes the exact shape and image of whatever you put it over, except that it just makes it look a different color. So it just makes it look a little different, but nothing about the environment actually changes. If anything, the paint conforms to the shape of the environment that it's laid on and just makes it look different. The church should be obviously like the water. Um, we, we shouldn't be, we should be reflective a little bit of the culture that we're put into, but, but we shouldn't be changed by it because God's word should hold our nature still. 
as we get into it. And the culture should be shifted or reshaped around, not us, around God's word because that is our nature, right? Uh, instead of just trying to make things look pretty when they're really not changed at all. So this letter to the Colossian believers here, in their culture, with all these beliefs and ideas about salvation, it's written ultimately to answer one question. Is Jesus enough? Is Jesus enough? And, and it's laid out in a way that addresses our identity so that you can answer that question with a yes. And what I mean by identity, a good way to look at it from the green letters, Bro T, a good friend and mentor to me, uh, once asked me this question from, from a book called The Green Letters, but it says this, does God accept you right now? And if so, on what basis? Man, that is such a great question. Does God accept you right now? And if so, on what basis? And that's what this book of Colossians um, hits up here. These people were accepting Jesus' sacrifices for their sins, but they were being tempted to believe that that wasn't enough by itself. That wasn't enough. That there, that there needed to be more in there, R.C. Sproul said this. He said, Colossians, the book, letter, helps the church in every age to see that Christ's work is fully sufficient to save sinners. Furthermore, adding uh, to what the Bible has revealed about Christ detracts from his lordship and supremacy. To cling to Christ alone for salvation is the only proper way to honor the person and the work of Christ. Well said, obviously. So, that's kind of what happens. That's the background. That's what the culture into the Christianity, the culture into the church in Colossae and, and what all is kind of going on there. Maybe Epaphras has brought it to Paul and said, Paul, you got to help. So Paul now responds um, by first of all saying, well, let me show you where my authority comes from before you take my word for it. And that that's kind of where he starts here in, in um, chapter 1 in, in verse 1. I don't know if you guys have seen the movie Aliens. I'm not endorsing it, but uh, it's old anyway. It's like 1986, I believe. But uh, I used to love those movies, and I ended up seeing that one in a the theater. And uh, But there's a scene in it where basically the premise is you have these Marines that travel deep into space to uh, investigate the disappearance of these pioneer families that had gone out there um, to another planet. And these Marines quickly realize when they get to this planet that these um, pioneer colonists have all been um, – have they've disappeared because they've been victims of these monster alien things. Um, and they only find one living person, and it's a girl, a uh, 10- or 12-year-old girl, something, little girl. And um, there's a scene where all these Marines have just gotten their um, tails whipped by these aliens. Several of them were killed, and they're, they're – you know, they're, they've just gotten – really whipped and so they're they've escaped for the moment and they're in a safe spot and one of them is losing it one of these marines he's just freaking out and uh we just got killed you know we just got attacked we just what are we gonna do just freaking out and there's another lady who's there um as an advisor and she's trying to kind of calm him down and she points out the girl and she's like you know this girl lived here uh for all this time all these years with no guns no weapons and no training and he responds by saying, well, why don't you put her in charge? 
And I think to some degree, I feel like that's the challenge facing these Colossian believers. There's there's a sense of, well, who's in charge? Who's qualified to get us out of this? Who's qualified to help us understand? Who can lead this chaos in religion and culture and Christian? And Paul pops in here and he reminds them why he is an authority that should be respected and heard. Watch this, verse 1. Paul, an apostle of Christ. Christ is the Greek word for Messiah or king. King in terms of Jewish Messiah here. So, but Paul, an apostle of Messiah, Jesus, by the will of God and Timothy, our brother. So, who is Paul? Who is Paul? I'm not going to go into his whole story. You can read it. Acts 26. He tells his own testimony. There's a couple of places he does that in Acts. Uh, uh, Philippians chapter 3. Paul gives his um, resume, so to speak. So you can look back up and find out for yourself. But um, Paul is someone who persecuted the church for a long time, dragging off Christians. He was a contract killer, a hitman, if you want to see it that way, hunting down Christians. And Jesus revealed himself to him in a powerful way, changed his life, and then Jesus made him a disciple maker and an apostle. Okay? So it's likely here that Epaphras reached out to Paul for help with the spiritualism, the chaos here that's overtaken the church. And so Paul's authority obviously carried a lot of weight. I mean, we're going to get the big, we got problems. We need the big dog. We need the big man. We need Paul. He is an apostle, but Paul notes here, look at what he said, that his apostleship is not by the will of man, but from God. I'll come back to that in a second. Notice also that he notes here that he's with Timothy. He's not alone. It's not just him in this. He's with Timothy. Timothy was a a disciple of Paul. He was a pastor at Ephesus, so they would have known that, you know. They obviously knew who Epaphras was, and he drops that name as well. And uh, Paul's noting the fact here that his appointment is by the will of God. What's he saying when he says that? His appointment is by the will of God. He also said it in a similar way in Galatians chapter 1 in his intro there. You don't have to turn his back like two books back. He says uh, to the Galatians, probably wrote it at the same time. Chapter 1, verse 1, Paul, an apostle, not from men nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised them from the dead and all the brothers who are with me. It's not, it's not just okay with God that Paul be an apostle. Paul thinks, oh, I want to be an apostle. God says, sure, that's okay. It's God's will. You understand what that means? Will. It means, the word literally means that it's an attitude of the mind that favors one alternative over another. So it's, 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 it's a singular word. It's not a plural word. Like, here's the wills of God. Here's the will. The singular will of God. This is what I, I desire to see happen above all other possible things. One desire to establish Paul as an apostle. It's not just one of many outcomes. It is the singular will of God. And it's a decision that excludes all others. It's a very specific thing. And for this reason, Paul can be confident that he is an apostle. That's what he's trying to say. I know who I am because it was God's will for this to happen. More importantly, the Colossians can know that he is an apostle because it was God's will. And so can we. When we read his word, we're not trusting, well, you know, I wanted to be one. And Johnny said it was cool. 
No, man, he's saying it, God didn't even say it was okay. God said, it's what I want from you. And again, Paul's not just saying that he chose to be an apostle because he thought it was a good job. Paul, Paul's, Paul's got a lifestyle, past and present, that, that affirms that that's the case with him. He spent years being discipled. You can look that back up in his story. Some think by Jesus himself, but he spent years being discipled. He's affirmed by the other apostles. The others affirm that, yes, he's, he's the guy. Uh, he displayed evidence that he was filled with the Holy Spirit. He did these miracles and things that the other apostles had done as well. Um, and his background sure affirms that something happened in his life. Dramatic in terms of seeing Jesus or being with Jesus. And he suffered extremely for his faith. All things that would affirm his apostles. Um, you know, or his apostleship, excuse me. So... Um, he, he goes on to just really hammer that he was not ordained by men. He was certainly affirmed by them, though. And you can look that up in Acts 13. They affirmed him. So he, he's not saying that they, that, that it was God's decision, but man affirmed it. Man saw it in Galatians and Colossians, both places here. There's others that he mentions as well who affirm his apostleship by their association with him. So, for instance, in Galatians 1, 1, he, he noted that, and all the brothers who are with me. Here in Colossians 1, he's saying, and Timothy, our brother. And he mentions Epaphras a little bit later on. So, he's using this term, we, as he goes all throughout Colossians, you're going to see him saying, we this, we that, we this. Pa- Paul is supporting his authority by saying, these others affirm this with me. These others also affirm it. By the time you get to Colossians chapter 4, he drops a whole bunch of names. So, again, the Holy Spirit alone, alone, the Holy Spirit alone ordains and defines the call of men. Okay? Holy Spirit alone does that. All we do when we lay hands on somebody or or ordain them, all we're doing is we're saying we recognize that God has called you. We, if we will affirm with you, we believe with you, because we can see evidence of it. We believe and we would affirm that God has ordained you. God has called you. God's already done that. And, and what we want to do is we want to help you accomplish it. We want to join hands with you. It's more like we're putting arms around each other and saying, let's go, bro. That That's what true biblical ordainment is. So one other name Paul drops here, look in verse 2. He says, from God our Father. So he's pulling in the heavy hitter there, saying that his authority and his words are coming from God himself. So real quick, before I move on, what's an apostle? So I I don't want to just blast over that. I don't want to spend a lot of time on it right now, but I will address it really quickly. Long and short of it, an apostle is an eyewitness to Christ given authority by Christ to establish and build Christ's church. That's kind of the easiest way to think about it. Not every disciple was an apostle. You can go look that in the text. It's clear. Not every disciple was an apostle. Even here, Paul refers to himself as an apostle, but notice he didn't refer to Timothy as one. You see that? 
Uh, he didn't refer to uh, Epaphras as one. So not everybody, it doesn't, it doesn't mean, you, you know, that they're the same. That's not the case. An apostle was something different. In Acts chapter 1, after Jesus' ascension, um, the disciples uh, have to replace Judas because Judas, as you know, had killed himself after betraying Christ. And so they go down this list of things that are qualifications for an apostle. And they're only looking for one to fill Judas's spot, and they narrow it down to where they really only see two options here for that apostle position, two different people. And even then, they still only take one instead of saying, well, they both fit. They can both have the job. No, they, they needed 12. And Paul would even go on to call himself untimely born um, because whatever it was that Paul saw of Jesus' ministry, Paul Paul would have hated because he persecuted it. But Paul did see Jesus on that road uh, in his testimony. You can read it. But the purpose of these apostles was to, they saw Jesus, they walked with Jesus, they were empowered by Jesus to define, establish, defend, start the reproduction of Jesus' church. That's what they were given authority to do. And they were given that authority because they were eyewitness to him. And they performed miracles to affirm their uh, association with him in order to define what the church was supposed to do. So today we have their writings. We have what they put. We, it's become scripture. It's the New Testament. But if the office of apostle exists today, and some argue it does, and I'm not going into all that now. But if it does, those people would be church planners because in a very basic way, that's what an apostle was, was a church planner. Um, but, uh, what they've, what they have done for us is given us scripture, given us an authority, which is the word of God right here. I give you a couple of examples. P- Timothy would go on to say in second Timothy three sixteen, Paul, Paul saying to Timothy, excuse me, Paul saying to Timothy later in second Timothy three sixteen, all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete and equipped for every good work. That's the authority, the word of God. That's it. That's the authority. Second Peter one verse 20, Peter wrote, knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. No prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So we know, and you need to know, as a believer, that your authority comes from God and not man. So it's not a guessing game. Man, am I cool to say this? Should I say that? Uh, uh. You know, you're not walking into conversations blind. If you're staying in the word, it's God's word that you're talking about. This is my authority. I'm not, hey, it ain't me, man. It's him. It's his word. You're not arguing with me. You're arguing with his word. I know you think that's okay. And I'm not saying, I'm I'm not hating you for that. I'm not mad. I'm just saying that's not what his word says. So this becomes the authority that you align with. This becomes what you use to talk. And that's what Paul is saying. He, he, he's saying that God is the one. We say God through his word. Paul, Paul is saying God is my authority. He's the one who willed that I would be an apostle that would have the right to tell you how to do church. Okay? 
uh, or how to live your Christian life, you could say, in terms of where they're at. So the last little piece here is the way he does it. Not just so that's his authority, but then his approach is with respect and love, and it's really good. So so you, you have this cultural when culture invades Christianity, and then his authority is from God. That's first, and then his approach is with respect and love. Watch this, man. It's, it's pretty strong. And I think about this a lot, too, because I've been in prison ministry for a long time, and more than 20 years now. And it's interesting, too. One of the big things, big things, and I actually have to talk to volunteers about this when they would come join me, is eye contact, which that's one reason this is driving me crazy, because I'm talking to a camera and not to eyes. Um, but But eye contact is huge. And it's particularly in the prison world because your eyes tell you everything. Your eyes say if you're scared, your eyes are going to let people know. If you're um, threatening, angry, your eyes are going to let people know. If you're weak, your eyes are going to let people know. Biggest of all, the way you look at somebody can tell them immediately if you respect them or not. And that is huge. Respect is huge. And that's what Paul's given them. Look at the respect that Paul lays on them. Look in verse 2. To the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae, grace to you and peace from God our Father. That word faithful means that they're displaying allegiance to to, to someone, in this case God. Paul in chapter 4 of Colossians later writes in verse 6, Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt. So that you may know how you ought to answer each person. That's pretty cool. But that's exactly what he's doing here. He's showing these saints and faithful brothers. He's showing them seasoned speech, gracious speech. He's opening his letter with that example. He's calling them saints, faithful brothers. It's, it's great respect that he's showing. It, some people would argue he's speaking to two different groups. There's the saints and there's the faithful brothers. I don't think so. Um, I think that he's identifying the same group in two way, two ways. They're saints. That's something that comes from God. God alone saves. And when you are saved, you become a saint. And so they're saints by God alone, but they're faithful by their own, uh, faithfulness. Like it's, they, that's their input. That's their part. And he's saying that you're, you guys are desiring to be faithful. Um, but they're saints by the will of God. And the Catholic Church would argue with that, obviously. You, you, you've heard of saints and whatnot, and the idea that the Pope is the one who alone can saint somebody or nominate somebody to be a saint, and there's all kinds of stuff with that. Some say you're only a saint after you die, uh, whatever. But that's not in the text. In fact, you can see it right there. He, 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 he is calling them saints. In Philippians, who, which he wrote that at the same time, likely, as he's writing Colossians. In Philippians 1.1, 1, 1, he says there, Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are of Philippi. So Paul calls himself and Timothy servants, and he calls the church in Philippi saints. They're all saints. So we're saints by the work of Jesus alone. That's a fact. It's something that places us into the family of God, and it defines our identity before God. We are saints. It does not, however, define our behavior. That's what faithfulness defines. 
So our identity before God is a saint, but our behavior is defined by our faithfulness, if that makes sense. And it will, because we'll read through the word and you'll see that. He says grace and peace to you. That's cool that he uses those expressions. Grace there is a powerful word to God, to um, Paul, but basically what he's getting at is God's goodwill here. He's like, may God's goodwill be poured out on you. That's kind of what the greeting means. Grace to you is may God pour out his goodwill on you. Is what he's saying. And peace is a good term to throw out there. And after all, we talked about what you've already heard me say about Colossae and all of the chaos and the different religions that were there. Peace would have been good. Peace is a a calm, an absence of war, an absence of conflict, an absence of debate and a harmony, you know. And Paul's extending to them a desire that they would be at peace, that God would calm their hearts, that they would have harmony. Um, despite all these things that are going on. And why? Because at the end of verse 2, God is our Father. I love how he says, our Father. So he's he's not claiming superiority. I got a message for God for you. He's saying God is our Father, our Father. And it's a loving word, Father, right? When you treat people with respect, you guys know this, but when you treat people with respect and honor right from the start, Man, it becomes so much easier to call for grace and peace to be extended to them. And then when you start getting into the things that you disagree on, people are a whole lot more receptive to hear that when you've come in with respect and grace and peace. That's the way we need to address people. So let me close up. What do we do with this? Um, Man, today we're facing all kinds of uncertainty. You guys know this in the world um, certainly in America, and how we respond is so important. I, I've had this conversation so many times lately, the way somebody responds to something related to modern-day times, and, and, and they may not even have meant it the way it came across, or they, they, they shouldn't have said it the time they said it, or there's just... It's, it's one of those times where it's so important that we think about how we respond. And it's even more important... Um, how we respond to those people who we would call brothers and sisters in the church. Because when we see the world show up in the church, and by world I mean world system, that culture, when we see it show up in the church, we need to address that. Especially if it's enticing the church, or if it's merging with the church, or worst of all, it's guiding the church. Then, Then yeah, man, we need to address that. And it'd be easy to get mad and lash out and get angry about it, you know. And uh, But we need to remember their family, their brothers, their sisters. We are brothers and sisters. We have one father. We need to be respectful to those people. And we need to address them uh, with love and grace, just like Paul did. But we need to find common ground to talk it out. By what authority do we have to come tell them anything, regardless of how sweet and kind we do it? Well, we get into the Word. The Word of God. Scripture is our authority. I am not talking to you by the will of man. I'm talking to you by the will of God. How do you know that? Because we're in His Word. We're talking to you from His Word. We love and respect from His Word. You know, it's only the grace of God that made it possible for Paul to even be an apostle or be the person that they might listen to or hear from. Um, Paul's the one who gave the authority. And it's 
the love of God that is expressed through Paul's words to family here. So first of all, I got to ask you, are you in the family? Because if you're not in the family, then this, none of this matters. You get into the family, you become part of the family, you find your identity because Christ's death on that cross for our sins and his resurrection and his life. And when you put your faith in him, when you surrender to him, he exchanges your sin for his righteousness. He nails our sin, your sin on that cross and hands you the righteousness of God. And that becomes your identity. And it's no longer I who live now. It's Christ who lives within me. That's what it means to be in the family. That's the gospel. And you have the hope of resurrection because he is also alive. That's the gospel. And that's what brings you into the into the family. And then you can expect when you're in the family that God's going to use you. He's, he's going to give you authority. He's going to use you in order to help others grow. And to help others learn to love his word, trust his word, be in his word. Um, now, if you are family, my question to you, bigger than anything, is are you standing on God's word as your authority? Do you know how to do that? Do you have somebody who's investing in you to help you understand his word more? Do you have people that are discipling you? Do you have mentors? Do you have people that are helping you learn his word? And are you taking that and investing that into others to help them know his word? Making disciples. That's our whole mission here. Making disciples. Are you doing that? Are you doing it with grace and peace? Are you doing it out of respect for your family as you share it? Let me pray for you guys, man, and uh, we will talk soon again. If you're here in town, we'd love for you to come tonight, hang out with us. We'll discuss this, talk more, very very discussion-centric um, evening, and looking forward to that. So let me pray. Lord, I thank you so much for this opportunity to be in your word and to talk through it, God. I pray that you're glorified by it. God, I pray if there's anybody today that's hearing your word, it's not my mouth, it's your word, that's hearing your word and convicted by a need to call you Lord and to surrender their life to you. I pray wherever they are, they do that right now. I pray, God, that they would shout at me. they give me an email, a call, find us on social media or whatever. Lord, let us pray for them, pray with them. And if they're here in town, which would be awesome, God, I pray that you bring them uh, close to us where we can love and support them. Help us be respectful, God, of those that uh, are in the family. Help us guide and lead based on the authority of your word. But help us also do it with grace and peace and a love that comes from knowing that you are our Father. We love you. We ask these things in Christ's name for your glory.